0: Okay, so we really finished letter number one yesterday. So we should be starting. I think what we're going to do is we are going to do the editor's notes, because the editor's notes do add uh, they are really the footnotes that happen as you go through it. Uh, We are going to lose a little bit of the continuity because we're not going to be doing it on the same day. But the editor has a lot of very important information about the context of the times and the context of what exactly the thrust of different letters are trying to accomplish. I think it is important. Before we do that, however, someone sent a question yesterday, which I thought is a um, very good question, which is that Binyamin is going through his list of issues with Judaism. He doesn't mention anything in terms of, well, is it important or should one believe in God or he used to believe in God, but he no longer believes in God. He used to believe in the divinity of the Torah. He no longer believes in the divinity of the Torah. Is there a truth to a mass revelation at Sinai? That's just not part of the dialogue at all. And I, I could think we could even just to bring, the, that, bring home that point a little bit better even. He says, every religion I believe should bring man near her to his true purpose. Now, if you believe in the entire concept of Judaism, right? if you believe in it as it was stated by the sages and as the written Torah has us, has it has it told to us then there really is only one religion that actually has the true purpose in life and that is Judaism right so he's not coming this individual is not coming from a mindset of where he thinks that Judaism is real and now he's troubled by some doubts in his faith because of the enlightenment that's not really what's happening over here really what's happening over here is he's coming from a perspective of assuming that the purpose of a religion is the attainment of happiness and perfection and that's the only purpose because He does not necessarily believe, and he hasn't even addressed this, does he believe that Judaism is given by God or not given by God? He doesn't address that at all. So his only standpoint is really, is it going to help him achieve his goals in life or not? And that's the only question. Now, why is it that Rabbi Hirsch is putting the words into his mouth where there's nothing to do with in terms of the veracity and the truths of the Torah? Why is that not part of the conversation? So presumably, at that time that wasn't this just was not part of the conversation the individual who asked this question clearly was of the impression There is of the impression that if you can prove that judaism is true then there's nothing else to talk about right if you can prove to me that this is something that is true and has a basis in reality then there's no more conversation to be had of course of course there's no other possibility you have to be a religious jew right now it seems like in those time periods that was not really on the table. Right? the table there wasn't a question of, can you just prove the existence of God? then it's all over? That wasn't really part of the conversation at all. Okay, let's look at footnote number one. So footnote number one, right? He's coming to explain why is it that Reb Hirsch, when he is addressing, when he's writing in this note, he's writing essentially to himself, right? So he's writing in this note that he, uh, the, the rabbi who being written to, his name is Naftali. And the question is, why is his name Naftali? The name Naftali is used here as a veiled hint to the identity of the author of the 19 letters. which was initially published under the pseudonym Ben Uziel. The secretiveness about the author was underlined by the Hebrew title, Igros Safun, letters of the concealed one, not Igros Safon, letters to the north. As misread by Professor Rosenblum. Uh, parenthetically, the editor, Rabbi Yosef um, Elias, in his introduction to this book, what he goes through is how, how Hirsch has been misinterpreted by many people, both on the right and on the left. And sometimes people on the right say he portrays him as very far to the left, and sometimes people on the left portray him as a fanatical, very far to the right. But, and he goes through some of the analysis over the, over the ages and goes through them and, and kind of uh, rips them apart. Anyways. Here as elsewhere, he was misled by his thesis that Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch was aspiring to the mantle of the Rambam and therefore wrote this work as a counterpart to the letters Igeret Teiman. So the Rambam wrote a very famous letter that is called the Igeret Teiman. It is a letter to Teiman. Teiman is Yemen, right? And what was this letter about? So the Jews in Yemen were under terrible threat of forced conversion by the, the Muslims living there at that time. And many of them had actually converted. And they wrote to the Rambam for chizuk, for inspiration, for strength. And the Rambam writes back in a very famous letter in different ways in which he tries to strengthen their faith and tries to help them believe that Mashiach is going to come and redeem them. So this professor was under the impression that Rev. Hirsch was kind of seeing this as a later point. So so therefore, he also assumed that it was Igeres Tzaphon, Igros Tzaphon, as in like some sort of uh, letters to the north, as in some sort of, uh, a, like he says, a counterpoint to the letter to Tema. Now, why the secrecy about the author's identity? Possibly he considered this work relatively insignificant. After all, it was composed only as a trial balloon prior to the publication of the Chore. More likely, however, he may have wanted it to be judged by its contents rather than by the name of the author. Indeed, in his letter to his friend, Z.H. May, concerning the plans for publication of the Chorif, by of Paul Hirsch, indicated that he would have liked to publish the Chorif anonymously in order to let the truth speak for itself. He only put his name to it because many people hold the view that a cause for which one does not even stake his name cannot have much value. In other words, if you would aim for the people who are the truly intellectual people, then they recognize that no matter who says the point, you analyze the idea for its truths inherent to the idea and not based on who is the author of, those, of that statement. So in truth, it really should not be based on who wrote it at all. But he recognizes that there are many people who won't even open up the book unless they believe that it is someone who's willing to put his mind, put, sorry, put his name on the book. puts his name on the book and that shows that he really believes it. He consoled himself with the thought that by signing his name, he would not overwhelm his readers with the weight of fame or authority as he was fully aware, he was only a young and insignificant small town rabbi. That's in, in terms of Chorey, but in terms of, um, in terms of uh, this book, he doesn't write his name at all. Turning to the next page, however, he did include a hint about the identity of the author in line with the practice of many authors of anonymously published work following a well-established Jewish custom. And so there's been a Jewish custom for many generations that people write things sometimes anonymously, but they have some sort of hint in the introduction or a hint in the, in the writing the name, maybe the name of the safer, the name of the book, as a hint to who actually wrote it. He named the young and doubting questionnaire, the embodiment of the new generation, Benjamin, like Jacob's youngest son, a source of worry to his father, but also strength and power. The wise older friend who provides the answers and guidance is called Naftali, a very obvious allusion to Hirsch, what, what, do, what is Hirsch, right? So Hirsch is Yiddish for Naftali, which is deer, okay? So they work together, right? Um, in Jacob's blessing, Naftali is called a fleet deer, which in German is a Hirsch. In fact, Naftali Hirsch has been a common, composite first name among Jews. At the same time, the author may have had in mind the basic meaning of the name Naftali, which signifies one who fights battles of God. In other words, when Naphtali is given his name by his mother, that is what she says, Naftule el-ukim, right? that he's one who will fight battles with God. This certainly was the role that the author took upon himself. Indeed, he used the name Naftali again in some of his other polemical writings. About the Polish Jewish teachers, in the, note, in the letter that Benjamin is writing to Naftali, he actually sort of um, looks down on the, on the Polish Jewish teachers who are teaching the kids, and they really cannot connect with them at all. So he's explaining now that Rabbi Hirsch has zero issues with the Polish teachers. The deterioration of the conditions of life among East European Jewry, starting with the Thirty Years' War and the Chalmanitsky Massacres of 1648, set in motion a continuing westward migration. These immigrants, by and large, provided the religious teachers and to some degree the religious leadership for the increasingly assimilated West European Jewry. So when they thought of who the Malamed, right, a Malamed is a a teacher of children, right, who is the Malamed, the Malamed very often would be an Eastern European Jew who was trying to get away from the pogroms and the destruction that was happening, and even before the the era of, um, after the French Revolution, when they believed in in egalitarianism, right, officially, you know, amongst most of the world, at least in Western Europe, even before that, they were somewhat more cultured than Eastern Europe in terms of what they would uh, openly do to the Jews. It took a, another couple of um, hundred years until they got even worse. Um, the culture got even worse what they would do to the Jews. Um, it has even been said probably somewhat too sharply. Oh, okay, so we read that. Uh, I'm sorry, it has even been said probably somewhat too sharply that without the Malamdin rabbis and other religious functionaries from Poland, Western Jewry would probably have been unable to maintain its spiritual and religious existence the author provides many details and statistics m a less. yet the malambdin in particular were ill equipped to provide the kind of education needed to counter the impact of the enlightenment and the influence of western culture and benjamin's words accurately described their lack of success with their students right so this was not necessarily something that they were doing in, in wrong or something that they that they were you know poor teachers but they were poor in their ability to connect with the audience okay